I'm Julia Gerla, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sistera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SisteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. As an Ohio State University weed scientist, Glover Triplett did some groundbreaking research on no-till in the early 1960s. He also started the longest ongoing no-till research plots in the world at Ohio State's Worcester facility. These extensive plots have produced valuable no-till data for more than 55 years and more than 75 scientific papers have been published by educators based on that data. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lassiter talks with Triplett about some of his early experiences. Join us as Triplett talks about sod seeding grazing crops into alfalfa and grasses, early chemistries that made no-till possible, why his wife thought his experiments would get him fired, and much more. Let's start out. Give me a little history, where you grew up, where you went to school, etc. Well, I, I, I grew up in Mississippi, and uh, I uh, went to college at Mississippi State, which is in Starkville, where I, which is where I live now. Sure. And my family had a farm. We raised cotton, corn, and we raised beef cattle and hay. And times change, don't they? Yeah, that's kind of what I grew up with. We didn't have any cotton in Michigan, but we had everything else. <laughs> well, I, well, I went to Michigan State to school after I spent some time in the Army in Korea. And then I got my doctorate at Michigan State. Then I moved to Ohio in 59. And um, you were talking about the early days of no-till? Right, right. While I was here in school working on my master's, there were some of the agronomists here that worked on something they called sod seeding. Oh, yeah. And in fact, the very first issue of uh, No-Till Farmer we did in 1972, we talked about a guy no-tilling corn in the alfalfa after he'd taken a hay crop off in May. Yeah. When they were doing this work here, what they were doing was uh, we have warm season grasses here in the pastures like Bermuda grass. Right. And so towards the... uh, end of the growing season for the warm season, they would go in there. They had a drill that would cut into the soil and and plant wheat or winter oats seed for winter grazing. Instead of plowing the thing up, uh, they planted this uh, small grains for, for the cattle to graze on in the, later in the winter. They, 
because of the competition, the growth was slowed. It wasn't as fast as if they'd plowed the ground, but the yields were good. So I, I was exposed to that. And when I got st- started on in Ohio uh, trying to work on no tillage, I went into sod, alfalfa, grass sod that was in that area. And the fortunate thing was that at the time I started that, that the tools to make it work had become available. Mm-hmm. Um, I could take 2,4-D and 4 pounds of atrazine and wipe out that that sod sure. and plant right into it. And that was fortunate. There had been some people thought about it before, but they didn't have the tools to get the weed, the vegetation control they needed. Right. And I've got another one I'm going to throw at you. Okay. Uh, we had a drill in the south. John Deere made a, uh, a, no, a no-till drill that they used for this sod seeding, put in these uh, winter grazing crops. Sure. I knew about that, and I got some openers from them so that I could uh, use them to uh, plant my crops. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time that I was doing it, that, people at um, Virginia Tech, uh, right. they had uh, put in some corn in the sod that they'd kill, and they had graduate students go in there with a uh, soil probe and take out individual plugs and uh, put corn seed in there and then crumble the, the plug up and and use it to cover the seed. <laughs> and uh, they they didn't know about uh, the John Deere drill that would sure. cut into that. Well, those guys at Virginia, it was like the pilgrims sticking a hole in the ground and then putting some seed in and putting a little fertilizer with it and watching it grow. Yeah. We'll come right back to Frank's conversation with Glover Triplett, but first, Frank is going to share a summary of one of Triplett's earliest papers on no-till. One of the very early scientific papers published on no-till was co-authored by Ohio State University agronomist Glover Triplett, who we are talking with today on this podcast. With the title of Non-Plowed Strip-Tilled Corn Culture, it was printed in the 1964 Proceedings of the American Society of Agricultural Engineers. The paper summarized three years of research from 1960 to 1962 in which corn was successfully grown without plowing or the use of secondary tillage implements. The key was the control of non-crop vegetation with herbicides without injuring the no-tilled corn. Where corn was no-tilled into alfalfa sod, the researchers found no yield differences with corn between the no-till and conventional tillage systems on soils ranging from silt loam to clay. The paper pointed out that any successful no-till herbicide system must perform several key functions, which are as true today as they were back in the 1960s. First, kill the vegetation present in the cropped area, then suppress the growth of perennial and annual weeds from seed, not injure the crop being planted, and do not injure any following crops. Then compete in cost with other crop cultural techniques. 
The combination of Dalpon and Amtrol applied in April controlled both broadleaf and grassy vegetation, so there was nothing growing on these plots when corn was no-tilled on May 15th. An application of two pounds 2,4-D and two pounds of apatrazine yielded 19 bushels per acre more than corn grown in a conventional system. Now let's get back to the... So you gave this paper in 1964 at the American Society of Ag Engineers. It was pretty much one of the first no-till papers ever done, wasn't it? Well, the, the, yes, it was one of the first, but people from uh, Virginia Tech ha had a paper that they put out. Mm -hmm. I think it was 61 that their paper okay. came out. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Right. Yeah, I, I did that. I had a contact with a guy from Ag Engineering that helped me put this planter together. So since we had it work, then he was the reason we put it in the uh, Ag Engineering publication. So you started out with atrazine and 2,4-D, and then a few years later, Paraquat must have come around, right? Yeah, it, it did, yeah. How'd you work that in your program? Well, if we go into uh, an area that already had corn on it, mm -hmm. and we get a bunch of annual grasses coming up, then uh, the paraquat would help us con control that uh, that type of, of uh, and it, it would give us immediate control. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think in the, even in the 50s, there were some researchers at Dow in Midland, Michigan, who had fooled around with the idea of um, no-till with atrazine and maybe some Dalpon or something. But yeah. they, they found out it took such huge amounts that they didn't pursue it. Yeah. I heard the story about you taking your wife out to see these plots, and she thought, Glover, you're going to get fired for doing this. Is that about right? <laughs> well, I, I I took her out there. She, her father was a cotton farmer here in huh? Mississippi, and he prided himself on clean cultivation and straight roads. Sure. And so I I took her out there and I showed her what I was doing, and she looked at some of these plots that had corn plants starting up. They about foot tall, mm -hmm. and uh, old corn stalks in there, and then dead weeds surrounding <laughs> them. Yeah. And her statement was, and I quote, Clover, this looks terrible. They're going to fire you. <laughs> Somehow you survived. I did survive, yeah. <laughs> So these plots at Wooster have been going on forever. I started those in right. 63, mm -hmm. and they've been uh, endowed. And after I left them, Warren Dick took them over, and Warren retired, and somebody else has got them now. Yeah. But but they they what happened was that I'd show somebody what I was doing, and they'd say, yeah, say you might get by with this three or five years, but Sooner or later, you're going to have to prow that ground, and then you pick the reason that it's going to have to be done. Right. And, and so after over 50 years, those plots are still there, and uh, they are still yielding well, and I don't think we're going to have to till them anytime soon to keep the yield up. 
No, I don't. You probably couldn't find a plow to do it anymore down there at Wooster. <laughs> Maybe not. They uh, a few years ago they named those plots after you, didn't they? Triplet Van Dorn plots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've lasted a long time. They saw you retire, and now they saw Warren Dick retire, and they're on the third guy running the plots. Yeah. Something else I might comment about is that there there was a USDA station at Coshocton, Ohio. Yep, I've been there. You've been there? Yeah. In fact, you took me there once. So I went down, and I talked to them about keeping this soil covered, and they had some experimental watersheds that they they would try new things on. So I would bring a planter down, and I would plant. And the erosion is reduced by about 50x in this uh, with this system going on. And uh, I'm going to make a statement here, and that is if we lose our soil, we're in trouble. Right. And you're not going to argue with me, are you? No, and we've been losing it, too. Yeah, we have. Yeah, you took me to Coshocton, and then we went out to see those plots, and then in the past five or ten years, they've given up on them, and no more research going on there, I don't think. I think that station's closed down. Yep, yep. We'll get back to Frank and Glover Triplet in a moment, but I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sistera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SisteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Before we get back to Frank Lesseter and Glover Triplett, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Today we're going to look back at a couple things that occurred among speakers at the 1994 National No-Tillage Conference, which was held in St. Louis. Ray Brownfield had data to show landowners that no-till added up to additional profits when compared with other tillage systems. At the time, he was head of Capital Agricultural Property Services in Oak Brook, Illinois, and he found that operating costs for an Illinois farm averaged $22 less per acre for no-till versus comparable farms doing conventional tillage. At the same time, he found that machinery costs were $66 per acre less with no-till. Another speaker that year at the conference was John Bradley, who was at the University of Tennessee's Milan Experiment Station. He reported on an 11-year experiment in which he found that the fuel costs of no-till corn amounted to $4.90 per acre less than with conventional tillage. And he found there was no difference in corn yields. Let's get back to Frank and Glover Triplet once more. So did you ever think no-till would catch on like it has? I, di I didn't know that it would. Of course, something else that I, I worked on, I, I had it on different soil types. And uh, some of the soils in western Ohio, at Hoytville, it was, uh, this, this was a high clay content soil. And uh, it was uh, 
a clay that shrink and swell as it it dried. Mm-hmm. It it swelled when it got water on it, and then it it would shrink and crack when it when it got drier. And uh, something that we found out was that uh, in in the Worcester area, on the soils that we had there, silt loam soils, these were soils that had been caught, uh, pushed up by ice during mm-hmm. it. And uh, if they were bare, if they didn't have any cover on them, we had big times reduction in in uh, crop yield because mm-hmm. the water would the surface would seal and the water would run off right but uh, on those soils that, that cracked and the cover was not nearly as important and almost no help on that soil mm-hmm. well I remember when we started no-till farmer in 1972 and I think maybe maybe 1973 you had done a report or a bulletin on how no-till would work on all kinds of soils. Yeah. And I remember in our in our subdivision, down at the end of our subdivision, there's a farmer who comes in there. He's got a thousand acres or so, but in the suburb area, he's farming a little little field down at the end of our subdivision that's 18 acres, and it's a muck soil. He's making no-till corn and no-till soybeans working there. And every time I go down there, I remember you in this report saying no-till will work on muck soils. Because <laughs> a, a lot of people thought it wouldn't, the drainage wouldn't be good, but you showed it would work. Well, it's been a, it's been a journey. So one of the problems we have is we're stuck with this corn-soybean rotation in most of the Midwest. It's not necessarily making us any money, and if we could diversify those rotations, there would be some soil health benefits and fertility benefits. Can we make some changes in our rotations? Well, of course, uh, when I started this out, there was quite a bit of, of rotation with Corn followed by wheat, followed by a crop that would be available for making hay or grazing. And then we would go, after a while, we would go back to corn. And we've had changes. Not There's a lot of farmers that don't keep animals anymore. Right. And so I had commented about that long-term study that I did. And um, the uh, I think that keeping it covered, and we we keep earthworms fed, right? And they they're important for us. Uh, now we may not be tilling that soil, but that that earthworm hole will help us with uh, water infiltration, and so. So I I think those soils are maybe they could be more healthy, but they're not as bad as if they were uh, bare and and tilled every year. Right, right. Well, you talk about earthworms, and they did a lot of work at Coshocton on earthworms and the hole in the water. And Bill, I can't think of his last name, did the research. Yeah. Well, one of the things we've had going south of Columbus in that area is 
double cropping where we, we've gotten wheat or barley into some of these rotations by double cropping soybeans. And that's, yeah. you get into Kentucky, that's been a real moneymaker for those guys over yeah. the years. Yeah, more than one crop a year, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you know, one of the things we look at, we we think that no-till. Well, when we started no-till farmer in '72, there were about 3.2 million acres, and the best guess today, there's maybe 108, 110 million acres of no-till. So we've come a long ways. Yeah. But you know, back in the '70s or so, USDA predicted we were going to be way over 50 percent by 2010, which was really optimistic, but. You know, you pointed out more than once that it took 30 years for hybrid corn to catch on, so we couldn't expect no-till to just double overnight. And, uh, we're, we're, you know, we, you mentioned livestock earlier. That's the idea yeah. now. We'll have a regenerative ag, but a lot of people in the Midwest don't have any fences anymore, or they like to go to Florida in the winter instead of breaking the ice in the beef cattle troughs. And uh, But some guys are making it work. We're looking at uh, some plots with 60-inch no-till corn with planting a cover crop or a grazing crop in the middle or even soybeans in the middle and uh, making it work. So one thing about no-tillers, they're very innovative and willing to try new ideas, but a lot of it goes back to the basic research that you did and got it all started. One thing, I'm you probably know this, but I'm going to comment on it. When I started that out in Ohio, sure, it wouldn't work here mm-hmm. in, in the, where I am live now because yeah. we had different weeds, and um, with the weeds population that we have here, atrazine and wouldn't take care of the grasses, mm-hmm. and, and um, but Roundup or glyphosate would. And when I came back. Um, they hired me here, and I, I w- worked on some no-till using the currently available herbicides, and and have, had it got it to uh, got it to work here in Mississippi. You mentioned earlier uh, 2,4-D, atrazine, Princept, uh, yeah. Monsanto, or uh, Roundup, and Paraquat. You know, you look at what no-tillers are using today, and my God, they've almost come back to some of these. And uh, the big hot item now is it used to be Banville, but it's dicamba and different formulation. But you know, and there's some real problems with drift right now on that. But uh, some of these old chemicals we used are still with us. Yeah, and and we have um, something that happens is that they, if we keep using the same chemical. Right. That there's probably a weed species, and I'm plural, <laughs> that tolerate that, and they they'll come take over. Right. So we we have to rotate the herbicides, and we have to, and and so forth. But um, another comment I might make was that the um, erosion potential in Starkville, Mississippi. Is three times greater than it was in Worcester, Ohio. Wow. And, and this is because of the amount and intensity of the rainfall that we get here. Mm-hmm. It, we, uh, we, we get close to 50 inches. Wow. Of annual, annual rainfall here. 
and we were getting in the mid thirties in in Ohio where I, I was working. Well, the land must be flatter in uh, Mississippi than it was in Worcester, or at least when you go southeast of Worcester down into Ohio, it gets pretty rolling. Yeah. We have some rolling land here, mm-hmm. and uh, of course the the delta is flat. Right. And uh, yeah, there's 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 hilly land here. We the area where we are is called a black belt. Sure. Which which was a uh, it was a a sea, and it has uh, uh, soils that, that underneath the soil is is a bunch of uh, shells and, and yeah. from the sea, mm-hmm. and uh, it was then it was covered with uh, primarily a, a clay soil, mm-hmm. and um, the, the clay soil is not very thick. So if we if we get erosion, uh, it can ruin you pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And you you can see places when you're driving along where the all the soil is gone, and you see the uh, uh, light colored uh, area that was beneath it. Well, I'm going to wind up with a little story that you told me, and you probably don't even remember this. But I actually wrote it in my history book. And during a field day in Ohio in 1978, I asked you how it felt to have a fellow Southerner, Jimmy Carter, in the White House. And you said to me, Frank, it's the first time in my lifetime that we have a U.S. president that doesn't have an accent. (laughs) (laughs) You remember that? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, this has been great. It's yeah. been great talking to you. So, Glover, I appreciate it very much. Well, I've, I've got a copy of your book, From Maverick to Mainstream. Yep, yep. Your name is in there a few times. A few times, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, take care. You too. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader recently asked where no-till really got its start in the United States. And it was in the spring of 1962, just south of Herndon, Kentucky, that Harry Young Jr. was the first American farmer to try this revolutionary idea on seven-tenths of an acre. In the summer of 1961, he had visited Dixon Springs Experiment Station in southern Illinois. He saw a small no-till plot that had been put in by George McKibben. And this was a man who was well ahead of his time. When Harry got back home, he decided to try McKibben's ideas on his own farm, and the rest is history. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Glover Triplett for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. 
Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.